Welcome to Frontline Church, South Oklahoma City's podcast page, where each week we will upload a new sermon uh, from our current sermon series that we're in. If you have uh, any questions, concerns, uh, or have a prayer request or need, you can email us at hello at frontlinechurch.com or visit our website, south.frontlinechurch.com. Thanks. Today's sermon comes from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. The word of God speaks to us. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word to us. Awesome. Hey, good morning, guys. You guys can grab a seat. If we've not met, my name is Andrew. I serve as one of our pastors here at Frontline, and it's really good to have you with us today. Uh, Hey, uh, I want to say if you're new to Frontline or maybe back in church or unsure of where you land with uh, Jesus, with the Bible, with Christianity, uh, man, we are really glad that you're here. We would love to get coffee with you and just kind of process more fully why we believe what we believe and why we have the hope that we have. So uh, welcome to you if you're with us and you're, you're just checking things out. It's good to have you. Uh, man, I'm excited about today. I want to give you just a brief heads up on where we've been and where we're headed uh, with our preaching as a church. So we last week wrapped up a year-long series going through the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians. And it was absolutely wild. It was, to be honest, the hardest book that I've preached in over 15 years of ministry. I think it was harder than any other book of the Bible that I've had to preach. But it was also really shaping for us as a church and really hopefully uh, beneficial to you if you were with us for that, that course of time. And in a few weeks from now, we're going to kick off our new series through the book of Genesis. We're going to take about 11 weeks. Yeah, someone loves Genesis over here? Uh, that's awesome. Uh, we're going to take about 11 weeks and go through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And our idea with that is we're going to take Genesis in chunks. So we'll, we'll do a little bit of Genesis and then take a break and do something else, then do a little bit more of Genesis and then take a break and do something else. And it is not... And an over-exaggeration to say that all of the ails, all of the problems, all of the issues of our world today find their origin in what we're going to look at in Genesis. And it's also not an exaggeration, an exaggeration or wrong or off to say that literally everything that we need as a society is found in Genesis. And, and the whole Bible is actually 
a re-unpacking of what happened in the first three chapters and what God promised to do about it. I mean, it is the most significant book in the Bible because of how foundational it is on our origins. So that's where we're headed in a few weeks. So what we have is we've got a few weeks between uh, 1 Corinthians and Genesis just to look at some stuff that is near and dear to our heart as a church, to look at some different passages of Scripture If you know Frontline and you've been a part of Frontline for a while, you know that we just love to take books of the Bible and work our way through. But we do occasionally have just Sundays where it's like, hey, let's lean into something that we want to lean into. And here's the reality is today what we're looking at is something that I I wanted to just sit in with you and revel in with you because after all of Paul's harsh rebukes in 1 Corinthians, out of all of Paul's hard words that he has had to say, out of all of Paul's corrective words, there's something I don't want us to lose sight of as a church, and that's really what we see happening in the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. Sound good? So I want to pray for us, and then we're going to jump in and work our way through this passage. Uh, Father, would you be with us today as we open up your word? We want to sit underneath the authority of Scripture. We want our hearts and our minds and our bodies to be submitted to you and your word, and we want to be shaped in our imagination by who you are and what you've done. And I pray today where there's been a loss in our hearts, where there's been forgetfulness in our minds, where we have drifted away from the main thing, today we pray that you would bring us back. And if anything, God, I pray that you would wow us by your love and that you would wow us by your grace. And I just confess that I, I am not a good enough preacher to do that. I'm not a good enough preacher to make people have their heart come alive to you, but you can do that. And today you can pour out your love. And that's what I'm praying for, that we would actually not just gaze and behold what you've done, but experience and taste in a fresh way what you've done for us. So come and move, Jesus. I pray these things in your name. Amen. On February 21st, a woman by the name of Alexandra Wolf ate steak, mashed potatoes, and broccoli for dinner. Then later that night, while sitting in a room, she spent 20 minutes scanning pictures in InStyle magazine. She remembers all of those details, just like she remembers that on August 2nd, she stopped at Target and bought Raisin Bran, and on April 17th, she wore a white button-down shirt And on October 2nd, she went to TGI Friday and spoke with a hostess who at the time was wearing black leather flats with small bows on them. Now, here's what's crazy. She remembers all of those levels of details, even even though those events happened years and years and years in the past. See, what's crazy about Alexandra and her story is that she was diagnosed with what's known as highly superior autobiographical memory or HSAM for short, and she's only one of 55 people in the U.S. that we know that have HSAM, and what's crazy about it is that people that have this can literally remember every single detail of their lives, virtually everything that's ever happened, every single thing they bought at a grocery store a decade before, every sign they passed going down the highway four years earlier, every conversation that's unfolded with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a harsh comment that a bully made at school, like everything. Can you imagine remembering every single detail of everything that's happened in your life? And here's what's crazy. 
is you would look at that at first and go, that could be really great. That'd be really amazing. But the more you play it out, the more you realize that this isn't actually a very fun thing to have. In fact, what she said is that it's hard for her to make friends. It's hard for her to date because her mind is just filled with all these memories. She remembers all these conversations, and it's hard for her to be present. She said it this way. She said, it seems like you hold on to everything, and it seems like you're just stuck in the past all of the time. So it turns out that remembering everything is not a good thing, right? Contrary to what my wife would really prefer from me, remembering everything is not actually a good thing. Now, here's, here's why I bring all this up, is because her problem is that she remembers everything. But that's not our problem. That is not our problem. In fact, if, if, if on one side of the ditch is remembering every detail of your life, the other side of the ditch is what often happens with you and I is that we don't remember too much. It's that we forget too much. Is it just me or does that resonate with you? Like the things that we should remember the most, we forget. Or sometimes what's really jacked up is we remember the things that we should have forgotten and we forget the things that we should remember. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He says, we write our benefits in dust and our injuries in marble. It ought not to be so. Uh, you could really define a tortured soul in that way where they walk around carrying all of the things, remembering in great detail all of the things that they actually should have forgotten or moved past by God's grace. And then the things that they really should be remembering, they, they forget. I, I would just want you to consider this, that I think one of the greatest threats, if you're a follower of Jesus in the room, one of the greatest threats to your relationship with Jesus, to your resilience, to your ongoing heart beating before the Lord is your forgetfulness. And it's forgetting what God has done. John Warburg says it this way. He says, the problem of the human race is that we remember what we should forget, sin, and we forget what we should remember, God. People today who have more information at their fingertips than all previous generations combined cannot remember who they are, why they are here, or what they are to do. And that's actually one of the reasons why we're going to be going into the book of Genesis is because of this forgetfulness that's settled in on not just society at large, but the people of God included on who we are, why we are, what God has done, and what you and I are called to do. But what I want to just explore with you today is this idea of remembering. In fact, this is one of the biggest themes that you see in Scripture again and again. One of the commands that shows up again and again is the call for you and I to remember. There's a way that you can get so comfortable with an American life, you and me, can get so comfortable in the life that we have that we forget God. In fact, this is the concern of Deuteronomy chapter 8. Here's what it says. God says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I commanded you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied. In other words, life is going great. Things are good. Everything's coasting along just fine. Verse 14, then your hearts be lifted up and look what happens. And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I, I hate suffering. I, I, I hope that you don't have to go through suffering, 
But the reality is, as, as horrible as suffering is, suffering is one of those moments in our lives where the comforts are stripped away, and it almost forces us to remember God again, right? You can go one of two ways in suffering, where you can, you can become more hardened by it and more angry, or you can lean in, and, and you can remember your desperation. It actually wakes you up. It sobers you up to the reality of your need for God. We forget God when we get too comfortable, right? Uh, in fact, God instituted something called the Sabbath, a 24-hour day of rest that should make its regular appearance in your life as a follower of Jesus. Every six days you work and then you take a day of rest. Why did God put that in place? It was so that we would remember. Look at what it says in Deuteronomy 5. It says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. This is God for the Israelites. Remember where you came from. And, and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. The Sabbath is a regular day built into your fabric of your week to remember God. Look again at what the psalmist says in Psalm 103. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. I love that line, like, don't forget the benefits of God. It almost feels weird to say that, doesn't it? Like, there's something about loving God and being connected to God and worshiping God that actually has benefits. And that might sound weird to you, that might feel icky to you, but it's not. It's like, life with God is good. Life with God is better. Life in the presence of God brings with it real life and joy and wholeness. And the psalmist is saying, hey, don't forget, soul. Don't forget that it's actually better with God. And I, I wonder how many of you came in today almost just out of routine, out of rhythm. This is what you do because it's a Sunday morning and, and we're Oklahomans and this is our rhythm. And, and, and you're just kind of sitting here. It's like you've forgotten. You've forgotten who God is and what he's done. And, and even, even as we're singing the songs, it's like your soul is just a little bit sleepy and forgetful. I find myself there all the time. Or notice what the Bible describes often as sin. In the book of Judges, it describes it as forgetfulness. It says, and the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who delivered them from the hand of all of their enemies on every side. There's a way to drift into sin and actually like step one is just forgetting God. It's forgetting God. And then 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says these words. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. These words that we looked at just a few weeks ago, and what Paul is urging the church at Corinth to do is, he's saying, hey, hey, remember the gospel. Remember it. Don't forget it. Like, this is the main thing. This is the most important thing. This is the mountaintop of Christianity. Don't forget who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Kevin DeYoung summarizes all of this like this in a book called The Good News We Almost Forgot. He says, the chief theological task now facing the Western church, I love this, is not to reinvent nor to be relevant, but to remember. We must remember the old, old story. We must remember the faith once delivered to the saints. We must remember the truths that spark reformation and revival and regeneration. 
Hey, friends, I just want to pause and say this, that everything we do as a church, everything we do on Sundays and throughout the week really has at its core, at its hallmark, a fight to help you remember. That's why we gather to confess sin. That's why we gather to announce the assurance of our salvation. That's why we sing the songs. That's why we pray the prayers. That's why we do this weekly. That's why we do what we do throughout the week in the, to- in the context of community is so that you and I would remember this reality. So here's what I want to unpack with you today is just how remembering the gospel, how actually rehearsing the story again and again, how pausing and gazing again at what God has done for us can tether our hearts to God, how how pausing and just sitting in what God has done can keep us people that are resilient, can help us to be people that are joyful in Jesus. So in light of that, I want to unpack Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, and there's a lot of ways that we could remember and look at the story of the gospel, but what I love about Ephesians 2 is it's how you and I experience the gospel on the ground. So there's a lot of ways to talk about it, but this is how the gospel hits us when it collides in our heart. So with that, just three things that I want you to see. Here's the first one. I want you to remember who you once were. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. And you... And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. This is all of us apart from Jesus, among whom, Paul says, we all once lived and notice the, the, the traits that drove us. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here's what Paul does. Is he starts out chapter 2 of Ephesians by giving us just a quick brief flyover of a, an honest assessment of our human condition apart from Jesus. Paul is saying, hey, don't forget that there is actually a time in your life and in my life where we were dead. And here's what's wild about that, is that even though we were breathing oxygen into our lungs, even though our brainstem was firing and we had things happening on, on you know, brain, brain wavelengths, even though we could talk and interact with other people in our world, Paul's assessment of our actual human condition, he's saying if you pull back the curtain behind all of that, you know what was actually happening? You were dead. You were dead. Not sick with sin. Not like if you could just get the right type of medicine, you'll recover. No, you're dead. You're absolutely 100% dead to God. Your heart wants nothing to do with God. Your heart wants nothing to do with his ways, with his will, with, his, with what he desires for your life. You don't care about it. You don't want it. You were dead. Now, here's what's really interesting about this. He's saying it's not that you and I's primary problem is that we were uh, wounded kids who grew up with maybe a mom or a dad who didn't love us fully the way that they should have. And so we're just wounded and we, we need therapy. And if we can get the right type of therapy and we can recover from our childhood wounds, then we'll achieve this kind of mature human condition. Now, it may be true that you were wounded as a child. I would imagine all of us to some degree were. And it's probably a good thing to work through that. It's probably a good thing to reach out to a good counselor or therapist and do some work around your childhood. For sure, all of that's great, right? But Paul's not saying that was really the issue, is that 
You were a child of your environment and wounded as a kid, and that's why you do the sinful things that you do. No, that's not the full story. And he doesn't say, well, you are morally neutral. Like, you know, you could have done good or you could have done bad, and sometimes you did good things and sometimes you did bad things, and you're kind of a mixed bag, and, you know, you're just... You, you, just, you just need to kind of get the right type of education and get the right type of political leader and get the right type of environment and get the right type of fill in the blank and then you're gonna be the type of person that you need to be. No, Paul's saying, you were dead. You were dead in sin. In fact, we weren't even people that were building intentional, beautiful lives and, and making something of our lives just without God. No, Paul says, you were like animals, You were slaves to your own desires. What your mind wanted, what your flesh and body wanted, you just did that. You were like animalistic in that way, driven by your very core desires, which were disconnected from God. Friends, the sin that you and I experienced before Jesus ran deep. And it doesn't mean that we were all bad. It doesn't mean that we were 100% as bad as we could have been. Like we could have been way worse, right? But every part of us was affected and marred and busted up by sin on some level. In fact, even the good things that we did, we did from a sinful motive. We were just broken and sinful at every single level. Richard Lovelace says this. He says, in its biblical definition, sin cannot be limited to isolated instances or patterns of wrongdoing. It is something much more akin to the physical, uh, the psychological term complex, an organic network of compulsive attitudes, beliefs, and behavior deeply rooted in our alienation from God. He says, sin originated in the darkening of the human mind and heart as man turned from the truth about God to embrace a lie about him and consequently a whole universe of lies about his creation. Sinful thoughts, words, and deeds flow forth from the darkened heart automatically and compulsively as water from a polluted fountain. The human heart is now a reservoir of unconscious, disordered motivation and response. And if you don't believe that to be true, like literally just turn on the six o'clock news. Open up your social media feed and just read, you know, and you're gonna see like this is true. And, and, and I would just venture to say that on your, on your most sober days, when you're most confronted with who you really are, we feel this, don't we? Something is wrong with me. Something is, and it goes deep, man. It goes all the way down. Something is off. And Scripture's diagnosis of our condition is you were dead in your sins. Now, why am I hammering this point so hard? Well, here's why. Because if you forget who you once were, then over time, the work of Jesus on your behalf loses its power. If you forget the depths of who you were, of how dark your heart really was, how far from God you really were, even if you grew up in church and were homeschooled and didn't, you, you only cussed with Christian cuss words, and, you know, like, even if that's your story, man, there are things about you that if you forget who you really were before you were rescued and redeemed by Jesus, you will come in and you'll just stop finding joy in God. And actually what I've found is that there's a direct connection between how deeply sinful and a realization of the weight and gravity of who we were and what God has done in response to who we were. There's a direct connection between that level of understanding the depths of your sin 
and understanding the depths of the power of his love for you. In fact, some of the people in our church that worship the hardest, and do you know what I mean by that? Worship the hardest. I'm talking about the way they sing. You're almost like, I think you need to come in and like stretch before you worship, you know, because you're getting after it on Sundays and you might not know their stories, but most of the time, the people that are worshiping the hardest were some of the worst people around. And and they're like, I know who I was. I I remember what happened. I remember what I was like. And I remember what God has done. I'm showing up on Sunday to party, man. I've been forgiven, right? I'm about to stretch before worship because I've been forgiven. That's what's ha- There's a direct connection between the depths of understanding your sin and realizing the depths of the love of God for you. In fact, we see this rhythm in Scripture all of the time where people, when they really encounter God, you know the first thing that happens is when you encounter God, it exposes His holiness, and as a result of exposing His holiness, it exposes our sinfulness. Notice just these few examples. Isaiah 65, Isaiah, in the presence of God, he says this, Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. His first reaction in God's presence isn't to like waltz right in. It isn't to swagger up to the presence of God. Isaiah sees the presence of God. He falls to the ground. He's like, Whoa, is me. I, I, I don't need to be here. I shouldn't be here. I'm a man of unclean lips. I come from a people of uncleanness. When Peter first meets Jesus and witnesses his power, this is a story in the Gospels that easily gets looked over. But notice what happens. It says this in Luke 5, but when Simon Peter saw it as in the power of Jesus, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me. For I'm a sinful man, O oh Lord. Like when you see Jesus for real, your first reaction is probably not like, hey man, good to see you. It's like, will you please go away? Because you're exposing something broken about me. Uh, when, when the apostle John saw Jesus in his glory in Revelation chapter one, it says this, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I fell at his feet as though dead. By the way, John is a Christian at the time. John is an apostle at the time. Like, John's on the team, and he sees the risen Jesus in his glory, and he is overwhelmed to where he falls at his feet as though dead. And I just wonder, like, I wonder about our church. I wonder about my own heart. I wonder about my own life. And I wonder how many of our issues have stemmed from this forgetfulness of who we once were and of the holiness of God and of his power and of his, and it's like we've just forgotten and we just have kind of assumed that somehow we deserve all of this. Like we deserve to sing the songs and we deserve to eat the bread and drink the cup and we deserve to just kind of waltz right. It's like we've forgotten who God really is and his holiness. Man, you've got to remember who we once were. Now, thankfully, the story doesn't stop there. It's the second thing I want you to see is I want you to remember not just who you once were, but I want you to remember what God did. Look at verse four. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, somewhere down the line in the future, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Friends, I just want you to pause and just revel in, behold with me this good news, this reality that everything hinges on these two vital words, but God. Like we were lost in our sin. We were dead. We were given over to the world. We were like animals, man. We were driven by what we wanted and what we preferred and what we desired and what we thought was right for ourselves. We were less like humans and more like animals, but God. And and I love this. Like we often picture the story of salvation as like we're out in the ocean swimming and we're struggling. We're starting to get fatigued. We're like, oh my gosh, if I don't, if I don't have some help here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start to really struggle. I'm gonna drown. And then Jesus pulls up in a boat and he's like, here, and he throws the life raft to us, and we reach out and grab it, and and then he pulls us safely to the boat and brings us up. And we're like, oh, thank you for rescuing me. I almost I almost was really struggling there, I almost really died. That's a horrible picture of what God has done for you. That is not your story. The story is that you were swimming out there and then you drowned and you died like you were at the bottom of the ocean for weeks on end. But God in his love and his mercy, he reaches down and he takes your dead heart and he just makes your dead heart come alive. You did nothing nothing to earn this or deserve this. You didn't even, like even the grace to choose Jesus, God did that for you. It's all grace. When you were at your worst, totally disinterested, wanting nothing to do with him, he set his love on you. And if that's true when you're at your worst, How would it be less true now that you're a child of God, now that you're forgiven, now that you're adopted, now that you're a son or a daughter in Christ Jesus? How would it be less true? How would he love you less now than when he loved you as you were literally dead in your sins? This is the good news of his love and of his mercy. Why would God do this? Well, a really bad answer is, well, I deserved it. No, we know that's not true because you can read the first few few verses of Ephesians chapter two. We didn't deserve it. There's nothing about us that deserved it. So a better answer comes from John Piper in his life-changing book. If you've not read this, Desiring God by John Piper, it is a must-read book. You have to read that book. It's so helpful, so powerful. And he makes a great case over and over in that book that, hey, God did this for his own glory. God did this so that at the end of the day, like, God looks good. God looks powerful. That, that's the whole point of Scripture is the glory of God. That's the whole point of our lives is the glory of God. I think that's absolutely true and an amazing answer. But I don't want you to forget, friends, that's actually not what the Apostle Paul says here. Here's the answer that Paul gives for why God would do this. Because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our sins. Hey, don't forget, like, yeah, it's all about the glory of God, but why did he make your dead heart come alive? Because he loved you. He made you and he loved you. And he placed his love on you. And even though you failed, even though you sinned, even though you rejected God, even though you rebelled, even though you still struggle to this very day, he set his love on you 
by his grace. And he's rich in grace. He's not like, well, I only have a little bit to divvy out. He's rich in grace. He can pour out as much as he wants. And I, I want you to notice this in Christ, with Christ language that Paul uses again and again. Look at verse four again. He says, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together. Look at this line, with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him. And he seated us where? With him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. There's this amazing connection that now happens between us and Jesus. Jesus was dead. He died on a cross in our place for our sins. He was dead in a tomb. And what did God the Father do? He made Jesus, his body, his life, his heart come back from the dead. He raised Jesus up. And now Jesus ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. Well, guess what God is now doing with you and I? Out of an overflow of love for us, he raises us up. He seats us in heaven with Christ in the heavenly places. And you are as literally secure in Jesus as Jesus is secure in the Father's love right this very second. If your faith and hope is in Jesus, you are held as tightly in God's love as Jesus himself is held in the love of God. You have been placed in Christ now, because of your faith in Christ, because of his love for you, what is true of Jesus is now gifted and true of you. And we forget this, but I just want to rehearse this with you. Don't forget your real identity. Notice who you are. You are God's child. You are declared righteous before God. You have been chosen and adopted by God. You've been redeemed and forgiven by all of your sins. You have direct access to the throne of grace. You are free from condemnation. You cannot ever be separated from the love of God. You, right now, as you are in your struggles, your weakness, your, your, your temptations, your addictions, you right now, if you're in Christ, you are seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. You have a new identity, and you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. It is so essential that you remember this news. Because here's what happens if you don't. What happens over time in the Christian life is that you start to picture your relationship with God like this giant ladder. And yeah, he loved you at one time and he died for you and he rose again so that you could be forgiven. But now he's, he's sort of like put the onus and the burden on you now. Like just, you've got to start getting your act together. You've got to start pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. You've got to figure this thing out. You've got to really try harder. And, and, and what happens is you're at the bottom of the ladder and over time you can work your way back up to a good relationship with God, right? Sometimes as Christians, do you ever feel like, man, my, my relationship with God is not good right now, right? I, I, I'm struggling. I'm not, it's not in a good place and I'm, I'm kind of down at the bottom of the ladder. I need to get back up to the top of the ladder. That's a horrible, horrible way to view your relationship with God. Richard Lovelace again says this. He says, ladders are always intimidating. And it is my suspicion that Christians should always assume that they start each day at the top of the ladder in contact with God and renew this assumption whenever they have appeared to, to have slipped a rung. What would it change about your relationship with Jesus if every single morning of your life you just assumed that I'm starting at the top with Jesus? He, he loves me. 
and, and, and he's chosen me and he's forgiven me and he's adopted me and there's not a second of my life where he will love me less. There's not anything I could do right now to make him love me any more than he already has in Christ. I'm loved by God. I'm secure in God. And when that's how you start your day, like it absolutely changes the way you live the Christian life. And that leads me to the third thing because some of you are like, yeah, but if you live this way, won't that result in like an easy believism and, and you're just, you know, take God for granted and presume on his grace and just live however you... No. Here's the third thing I want you to remember. I want you to remember your call because actually what happens when you live this way out of an overflow of the love of God for you, it actually affects the way that you live. Here's what Paul says in verse 10. He says, for, so based on all that he said, for... We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love this because it's basically highlighting the two distinct ways that our lives have gone before Jesus and after Jesus. Saying before Jesus, you and I, we were by nature dead in sin, hostile to God, followers of the world and the flesh, and the devil. That's who we were. That was the trajectory of life that we were on. But because of the grace of God, we've been recreated. We've been literally remade in Christ Jesus. We're totally different people. Yeah, we still look the same, but we're literally completely different people by his grace. And now, for the first time, we have the possibility of living a life that pleases God. We actually can live a life of obedience to God. We're actually set free from sin in such a way that we can say no to our sin now and we can say yes to God. And, and man, let me tell you, it's slow and, and often it's up and down and sometimes it's more down than it is up. I've heard the Christian life is like uh, being a yo-yo in the, man, in the hands of a man who is going upstairs. I love that. Like, so we're going up and down, but ultimately we're going up right? That's sort of what the Christian journey is. But now by his grace, we have the, the, the ability to actually say yes to Jesus and to walk in a way that displays what he's done in our lives. And this is slow. It's painful. The, the theological term for this is sanctification. And here's the good news of it, that God loved us so much that he didn't just be like, you're forgiven, you're remade. And then he like leaves. But he's like, you're forgiven and you're remade. And now I'm going to slowly actually help you live into who you really are. Here's your identity, and now I'm gonna help you become who I've made you to be. This is what God is doing. And throughout history, we've had to recover different aspects of this good news. The Reformation was, was the, the church recovering the fact that there's nothing we bring to the table. It's we are made right before the eyes of God by faith in Jesus alone. There's nothing that we can do to earn it or deserve it. But then there's been other times where we've had to recover the fact that because he's made us right before God, he's also changing the trajectory of our lives. And this is what the, the great awakening was, where it was like a rediscovery of the holiness of God and how we're called to live into obedience with God. And So I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you need to recover just the, the sheer beauty of like, I was dead in my sin and God made me alive and I've been made right before God by his grace. Maybe that's what you need to recover today. Or maybe you need to recover this reality of the holiness of God that drives you to want to love him, that drives you to want to be obedient to him, to be faithful to him. I don't know where you're at today, but either way, let Paul's gospel logic start to play out in your life. Notice what he says in Colossians 3. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ... 
If then you are a follower of Jesus in this room, if then all of these things really are true of you, then here's what we do. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Friends, allow the love and the grace of God to drive you into obedience today. So where do we go from here? Well, hey, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to be crystal clear with you. It has nothing to do with what you bring to the table. It has nothing to do with you cleaning up your life first. Like, I literally want you to hear this. You, as you are right now, in this moment, you are loved by God. You are loved and treasured by God. And Jesus died in your place so that you could be made right with God. And the only thing you need to do is to just give him your heart, to say yes to Jesus, to actually say, what you're saying you did for me, I believe that. And I'm gonna trust that that's sufficient for my own salvation. I'm gonna trust in Jesus. That's what you get to do today. And if you do that, then you are made right with God in his eyes. You are forgiven. You're given all this new identity that we've been talking about. You are raised up and seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. And you can demonstrate the reality of that by getting baptized, where you get in the water and you say, I want to repent of my sin and I need to be washed. Just like, just like the blood of Jesus is washing me, this water is washing me and I'm demonstrating what God has done as I go under the water and get raised up. Jesus is making me a new person. From the inside out, I'm, I'm new and I'm, it's like I'm alive for the first time. So we would love to invite you to repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus today so that this can all be true of you. What do you do if you are a follower of Jesus? Now, the call today is so simple. It's like, hey, just remember this story. Remember this reality. If you're sitting here and you're like, heard it, your heart is in a bad place. If you're in here and you're like, yeah, just, what else? Like, let's move on to bigger and better. No, there, this is the thing. There is no bigger and better. Like, this is, this is the, the door and the house and the whole thing of Christianity. And you're invited to not just walk past the gospel, but to sit in it day in and day out and to remember and to rehearse. And friends, I just want to plead with you, like, don't become a gospel local. Like, like the, the people in Colorado that don't even notice the mountains anymore. It's like, how do you not notice the mountains? They're beautiful. How do, we, how, how do we avoid becoming gospel locals? It's by rehearsing the story and remembering again, today as I am, I'm loved by God. I want to invite you, would you stand with me? If you're not a follower of Jesus, then we're, we're going to ask that you don't take this meal, the, the body and blood of Jesus. The bread reminds us that there was a day where his body was broken for us in our place. And the cup reminds us that his blood was shed so that we could be forgiven and adopted. And here's what I want you to remember if you are a follower of Jesus, because we're going to come and take this meal together as Christians and get in groups today to do that. What we're going to do as we take this meal is we're actually rehearsing again and again this reality that though the grace of God was free to me, it was incredibly costly to him. Though, though it didn't cost me a thing, and I got nothing but the benefits of God's love, it actually cost Jesus his body and his blood. And as you come and receive this, I just want to read this over you. I want you to remember this. This comes from a, a, a devotion that Charles Spurgeon wrote called Morning and Evening. 
And let this ring in your ears and in your heart as you come and receive this meal. He says, it is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this. For he is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. He insinuates, your sins are too great for pardon. You have no faith. You do not repent enough. You will never be able to continue to the end. You don't have the joy of his children. You have such a wavering hold of Jesus. Maybe today you hear those words. Notice what Spurgeon says. He says, all these are thoughts about self. And we shall never find comfort or assurance by looking within. But the Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from self. And he tells us that we are nothing but that Christ is all in all. Remember, therefore, it's not your hold of Christ that saves you. It's Christ. It's not your joy in Christ that saves you. It's Christ. It's not even faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It's Christ's blood and his merits. Therefore, look not so much to the hand with which thou art grasping Christ as to Christ. Look not to your hope, but to Jesus, the source of your hope. Look not to your faith, but to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, our feelings. It's what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. So friends, looking to Jesus, you're invited to come and receive the body and the blood of Jesus today.